Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Talks, Knight Frank's weekly research podcast. I'm Patrick Gower and today I'm joined by Global Head of Research, Liam Bailey, and Global Wealth Specialist, Flora Harley. Readers of the financial press will know that environmental, social and governance concerns are the hottest of hot topics in boardrooms globally, whether that's covering impact investing or diverse hiring or corporate giving. But until now, there really have been few signs that ESG is transforming the residential property markets in the way that it has in the wider financial sector. It certainly lags behind its kind of office or industrial cousins. By way of example, the government has just scrapped the Green Homes Grant, which offered households incentives to install insulation or low carbon heating. But earlier this month, we saw lender Paragon introduce green mortgages for landlords, giving borrowers a preferential rate for better energy efficiency. Liam, where's this come from? And could this better financing for borrowers be what moves the needle on sustainability in, in the residential sector? Thank you, Patrick. Um, there is a there is a market need here. You know, governments around the world, but you know, here in the UK, have set an ambition that they want to go green. They want to green the economy, and you know, uh, green finance is, is is a significant area of innovation at the moment to uh, to meet these kind of requirements. So, if the UK government wants to meet improved environmental standards, uh, all new buildings have got to be super green. Existing buildings need to be made green. This green investment is expensive, and while Uh, For things like offices and shops and warehouses and so forth, that kind of commercial B2B property space, the market is supercharging the race to meet new regulations and so on. Increasingly, funds, investment funds and so on, they won't buy the shares of property companies if they don't make things green. You know, ultimately, CEOs have shifted their positions because their investors require it. Mm. But for houses and flats, the story isn't quite as good. Um, the problem that governments face is existing homes, which is the biggest sort of segment of the built environment. It's the most difficult issue. And the government's got a problem because owners and renters, they're not volunteering to go green. Right. But then comes along the green mortgage. Here's an opportunity to actually construct a product which can incentivize the housing market to buy green property or to invest in an existing property and make it green because they get a lower interest rate or a higher loan amount. So actually, this is a this is an incentive that the market needs, uh, in a sense, to kind of push it. Mm. Potentially, there might also be increased value. So actually, if we get to a position in a few years' time when every house has got to have a new ultra-clean boiler and lots of insulation, houses that have got all those things in place probably will be worth slightly more uh, than other houses. Okay, and the floor up... One of the challenges to really moving the dial on sustainability in the residential market, as Liam's just outlined, has been cost. You've been looking at where billionaires are buying homes. For those that can easily afford this, uh, are the billionaires insisting that their homes are are green, uh, looking towards net zero and so on? Attitudes to ESG have shifted. And what we found in the wealth report is that 43% of ultra high net worths, so that includes those billionaires and the ultra wealthy, they are more focused on ESG than they were 12 months ago. So they're thinking about it. But from on the ground, what we're hearing is it's not hugely high in the conscious of most buyers and sellers. So it indicates the change will have to be regulation led and there's no massive signs of people voting with their feet. I mean, yes, they're interested in the east side, but when it comes to what they're purchasing and where they're purchasing, it seems more about 
the lifestyle and the S sort of factor. So they're looking at that well-being piece. So, for example, a lot have looked towards New Zealand. Last year, we saw some billionaires managing to get to New Zealand before the borders shut and purchase homes there. And there's been a lot of uptick in interest, particularly because of the lifestyle factors that they can have. And so I think that's more leading decisions. It's more the S side than the E. Mm -hmm. Okay. This week, you've been tracking where the world's ultra wealthy are actually buying. Uh, So those worth at least $30 million. Uh, London came top. It's leapfrogged Hong Kong and New York City for the year. Why is that? The research we looked at is super prime sales, which are $10 million or more across a dozen markets around the world. And as you said, London has overtaken its usual rivals of Hong Kong and New York for the first time in quite a number of years. There's a few reasons underlining this. Uh, London has seen price falls for the last five years. So there's perceived value. And there was a lot of pent up demand given the changes in stamp duty and Brexit that's been building. And at the end of 2019, we saw that decisive general election and some of that demand started to be released. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. That started to build up a new type of pent up demand where the ultra high net worths were reassessing how and where they live. So you saw a buoyancy in the London superprime market with over 200 sales last year, which was actually a rise on what we saw in 2019. Homes at that higher levels tend to be bigger. So they offer more space. They offer the suffice of wellness and amenity that more buyers are seeking. As I said, they're looking more at the S side and well-being and amenity in the broadest sense. So that's sort of spurred on in the higher end of the market. Mm. So what I'm hearing here is that a lot of the trends we, we, we saw in the mainstream market, people looking for more space in rural areas and so on. But we often talk about this demographic as being super mobile internationally and so on. Someone choosing to buy in St Albans instead of Camden is one version. What's the super rich version? If you, if you, instead of buying in an urban location, are we seeing other nations becoming more popular or, or, or different parts? You mentioned that there are waterfront parts of the US. Yeah. Um, so in the US, uh, as we echoed in our Prime International Residential Index in the Wealth Report, it, waterfront uh, locations have performed really well. Miami sales in that super prime uh, market have more than doubled last year. LA, Palm Beach, all of these were in high demand for the super wealthy because it's that lifestyle factor being on the waterfront, getting those larger homes. But we've also seen a higher number of activity in the ultra prime, which is 25 million plus in Singapore, where the ultra prime sales more than trebled last year. It's um, the city state has performed really well in terms of ultra high net worth growth, as we mentioned. And also the appeal has grown for asset and wealth management industry with the introduction of the variable capital company in January last year. So it's said to be a game changer for Singapore's industry. So again, that's garnering a lot more attention now among Asian individuals. Okay, so super prime sales have continued to be resilient, broadly flat across the course of this year. But what would you say, and Liam, you know, feel free to give your insight into this as well. What would you say the outlook is over the next kind of three to five years? Rates are going to be held at record lows, which makes property appealing. But on the other hand, we're hearing noises about wealth taxes and so on. But then we're also hearing record growth. So perhaps safe havens aren't in demand. So there are a few kind of contradictory messages. And I'm just trying to work out where super prime city property markets are likely to move over the coming years. I think if I well, if I can chip in, you've got two two trends coming out of the pandemic. One is the fact that as you, as you as you say Patrick, 
interest rates are likely to be held lower for longer again. And it is likely, therefore, that the kind of current surge in house price inflation around the world will continue for some time to come. The super prime market will benefit from, from, from that story as well. And then the other, the other issue, is, as Flora touched on, is this kind of search for space and the fact that people have been sort of upsizing, if they can, and if they can afford it, uh, upsizing, upscaling, all of which, again, benefits or increases demand in the super prime markets as well as the wider marketplace. So I think the next one to two years at least, we'll see relatively healthy conditions in prime markets globally. Just adding to Liam's point on that, if we look at what's happened already at the beginning of 2021, New York super prime market took a little bit of a hit last year. It's normally quieter in presidential years. Plus, it was one of the hardest hit cities at the early onset of the pandemic. But in February 2021, signed condo contracts in Manhattan were 55% above where they were last year. And that's before the pandemic hit. So you can see that there's a lot of interest and activity going on in these major cities. In London, research from Knight Frank shows that March 2021 was the highest number of offers agreed, higher numbers of offers accepted, highest numbers of new applicants for a decade. So there's a huge amount of demand still in these cities. The the rhetoric around the move away from cities isn't as true as we may think. We've covered a lot of ground there from green mortgages and ESG to billionaires buying in New Zealand and Miami. Before we finish, I do just want to take a couple of under-the-radar stories of both of you, as we normally do, something that our listeners should be tracking that perhaps they aren't. Uh, Flora, I'll start with you. So mine is actually sticking with the ultra-low interest rates, and that is that a forecasting and economic service provider, Capital Economics, said yesterday that they don't expect the Bank of England to raise rates until 2026, which is quite some time yet. I mean, still five years out. There is some precedent given what happened after the global financial crisis and that rates didn't rise for five to 10 years. So it's optimistic. I don't know whether that's going to play out. I think how inflation sort of starts to rear its head over the next year or two will play into this rhetoric a little bit. But I think it's something that we'll be closely monitoring and seeing what other people say around the subject. Mm. Uh, And Liam, from your notes, there are some various themes emerging. What what, what would you say are the most important ones to be looking at at the moment? The big story that I've I've picked up on uh, is kind of related to the cost of housing, like Flora's story. But it's a significant shift away from super prime. And it's that uh, we've just had hot off the press. Berlin has had its rent cap overturned uh, by Germany's top court. So for avid readers of our of our research notes at Night Frank, you'll be aware that uh, Berlin brought in a rent cap last year. Uh, and it's been overturned by Germany's constitutional court, saying that Berlin's rent cap violated Germany's constitution. Uh, so it wasn't overturned because it was thought to be a bad regulation or, or, or badly drafted. It was purely a sort of technicality in terms of you know who had the right to to bring this in. But the relevance of this is, as I think, this this whole debate around affordability of housing, cost of housing, particularly rental markets, got a lot further to go. And actually, just touching on Flora's point about the uh, the cost of debt, you know, interest rates being held low for longer means actually that that position of those fortunate enough to be able to buy property benefiting from uh, low rates is kind of increasingly a very different experience from that from renters uh, who, who can't benefit from that same kind of process. It appears to keep coming back in London, this debate over rent controls and Sadiq Khan is obviously leaving everyone for dust in the mayoral election. He favours it, but of course, limited by the fact that that would require primary legislation. But look, thank you, Liam and Flora, for joining me today. 
For more analysis, you can subscribe to our research note. It goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. See the show notes for more details. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening to this week's Intelligence Talks. Intelligence Talks.